Many of us remember Vacation Bible School. We sang silly songs with elaborate hand motions. We memorized Bible verses. We drank little cups of juice and ate animal crackers. And depending on our age, we learned the stories of our faith through the cutting edge media of the day, from flannel graphs to puppet shows to well-produced videos of singing vegetables. But I think for a lot of people, this is about as far as we have gone in our exploration of these stories, particularly those in the Old Testament. And that's a problem. Over the next couple of months, we will be rereading some of the most celebrated biblical stories of our youth. But this time, we will be setting them in their proper historical context, which means that even though we may have heard the stories of Noah and Abraham and David and Jonah, we may have missed the point. I mean, they aren't really kid stories. So brace yourselves and break out the animal crackers. This is adult VBS. All right, well, this is Adult Vacation Bible School. We are in week four tonight. We are going to be studying a very well-known passage, namely the entire book of Jonah. We're going to be looking at that. If you want some more information on this, if you think that each chapter deserves an entire sermon, then you can go back in time on our podcast. And in 2014, we did a four-week series on the book of Jonah. I'm gonna try to condense most of that into 30 minutes. We'll see, how, we'll see how I do. Now, here's the thing about Jonah. We have a history with the book of Jonah. If you have spent any amount of time in the church, this is a story that you know well. This is a story that certainly takes up residence at a vacation Bible school sort of scenario or that you get in a Sunday school sort of scenario. You know the story of Jonah, However, usually that story is condensed to one big moment in the book, and that moment is the whale, or to be more precise in Hebrew, the big fish. If you want an anecdote that I think's funny that nobody else does, we made a video, and this is one of the first lines. If you want a little anecdote, in Hebrew, the word for fish is dog. She gets good comedy. All fish. Could be, you never know, all right? So we have a history with Jonah, namely we have background and we have presuppositions and we have all sorts of things going into the study of this book. Even if you are not churched, if your um, childhood was not spent at youth camps or vacation Bible school, most people know this story of Jonah being swallowed up by a big fish and residing in the innards, according to some translations of, of the fish, for three days and three nights where he is composing this, this prayer according to the story. We know the broad details, but there's a lot of things that go around this story that we don't necessarily spend a lot of time engaging. So while we have a history with Jonah, we don't necessarily uh, look at the entire book itself. In fact, this is John J. Collins. He's a, a Old Testament professor at Yale. He's going to say something that's going to prick at your upbringing, perhaps, and maybe ruffle some feathers. So I'm going to put him in slide two here, just so we get this out of the way. John J. Collins says, for many conservative Christians, which for most of us, that's kind of where, where we cut our teeth. That's where we grew up. That's the sort of background that we have, it says for many conservative Christians that Jonah had the status of scripture, it was taken to mean that the book was historically accurate. When we grow up, uh, I don't know about you guys, but anything within either cover of this book, we automatically go into the study or to the thinking of these stories as a certain type of story, namely as history. And so it became a virtue to believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale or a big fish, but such credulity was never a real virtue, he says. It merely indicated a tin ear in the matter of literary genre. And all my conservative people in the room say, whew, I don't like that. Get out of here, John J. Collins. You don't know what you're talking about. But what he's saying is, when we attempt to, to portray Jonah as straight history, what we're missing is what this story is attempting to do in its ancient Near Eastern context. Raise your hand if you've heard me say ancient Near Eastern context about a thousand times. This is no different. It's important for us to, to wrestle with that today. Collins says this, namely the book of Jonah, is a whimsical, ironic, and amusing fable. 
To take it as history is simply to miss the point. Now, I don't know if you're, if you're anything like me, but I, I know that there's probably been a point in your life where something like this would be said, and that would make you a bit uncomfortable. Specifically, when I talk to um, some folks, the, the immediate pushback is, well, God is God, and God can do whatever God wants to do. If God wants to supernaturally protect Jonah as he is in the innards of the big fish for three days and three nights, and if God wants to reveal God's self to Jonah in the midst of that and allow Jonah to compose this, this prayer, which actually is, is heavily indebted to the book of Psalms, I believe it, it quotes some 20 or so odd Psalms within his own prayer, God can do whatever God wants to do, to which I would say absolutely, correct. God can do whatever God wants to do, and if God wants to keep a person supernaturally protected within the innards of a fish for three days and three nights, he can absolutely do that. But just because God can, that doesn't mean that God did. What it comes down to is we have to engage this book as this book is begging us to engage it in the same way that this author is wanting us to see this story. And I would actually argue that for the most part, when we read Jonah as straight history, we're going to miss a lot of what is going on, not just in chapter two and the three verses in the entire story where, where Jonah is swallowed by a fish and then thrown up by a fish, but we're gonna miss the beauty of chapter one and chapter three and chapter four as this story is unfolding. My doctoral supervisor says this, I assume that Jonah is just a story, like one of Jesus's parables, but the reason for that assumption isn't that it's impossible to survive for three days inside of a fish. Get that? Most people go into this discussion thinking that if anyone says this didn't happen historically, then they must reject miracles can happen, but this is not necessarily the case here. He goes on to say, of course, Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land, could preserve someone inside a fish, but the reason that he's reading it as a story is rather the jokey nature of this story as it's presented in Scripture. And tonight, I'd like for us to, to take a moment to step back and to look at some of the, quote, jokey nature of this story so that we can at least understand where scholars are coming from when they approach the book in a non-literal or non-historical way of understanding it. So uh, for most scholars, they would say that genre triggers reading strategy, meaning that when you approach a text, you approach a text from the vantage point that it is wanting you to approach it. If it is wanting you to approach it as satire, then you read it as satire. If it's wanting you to approach it as history, then you read it as history. Now, Jonah's difficult because scholars have like 19 different literary genres that they attempt to throw out there for us to engage the text, but still we're attempting to see how it's begging for us to read it. Leslie Allen says the modern reader can read the story aright only if he understands it as it was originally intended. You guys ever seen these trailers that they kind of redo? Mrs. Doubtfire. It's a whimsical tale of a of a dad going through a tough time with his wife and is being ostracized from his kids and he decides that the only way that he can spend time with them is to impersonate a really old British housekeeper named Mrs. Doubtfire and he invades his home to spend time with his kids. You, you remember this? Some people have recut this and made a trailer to present Mrs. Doubtfire not as this whimsical, funny, Robin Williams, lighthearted sort of family saga, but as a horror film <laughs> where Mrs. Doubtfire is wanting to basically murder everyone that she comes into contact with. You remember the scene with the, with the masks and all of that stuff? And it just kind of it places the audience in this movie to see it not as something cute, but as something scary. And the way that we approach the Bible is sort of similar. However, whatever lens we bring to the text, that's how we might see it. And when we attend to the story of the book of Jonah, I want to tell you that it's weird. And it's not just weird when the guy gets swallowed by a fish. It's weird in the beginning, and it's weird in the middle, and it's weird at the end. Everything about this story is sort of screaming for you to read it with a different set of glasses on. So what I would like to do this evening 
I would like for us to try something collectively together. I would like for us to suspend all of the presuppositions that we have about this book. I would like for us to suspend all of the Vacation Bible School teaching that we have heard, all of the Sunday School material that we have heard, all of the things that we are bringing to bear with regard to how we believe the Bible should be read. I want us to suspend all of that for a moment just to see if some of these scholars might have a point. I went through my commentaries, if this means anything to you, and I have a good number of them. There was only one commentary out of that entire collection where the scholar said, you know, this could be history. And every other commentary and source that I had said, mm-mm, probably not. That's a, that's a worse reading of the Bible. So I want us to try to suspend some of our ideas and read Jonah anew for the first time. And in order to do that, we are going to travel our way through chapter one and a little bit of chapter two and chapter three and chapter four, because this is a fun story. And if at some point it is proven that my idea of fun and your idea of fun, they do not coincide, just somebody just wave a hand, you know? And that might just be you saying, I'm out of here, everybody. It's been fun. And you can back yourself out of the door, okay? But I think that it would be important for us to at least engage this story on its own terms for a little bit of time. I will have you know that a straight reading of the English translation of the book of Jonah lasts about seven minutes. I have incorporated a bit more material than that this evening, okay? So this is, uh, I, I took out the versifications and I took out the chapter headings, uh, but you'll see where we're going. And again, I'm using Robert Alter's translation uh, of this text just because I like what he does and how he's trying to bring out some of the, uh, the plays on words in the Hebrew and, and different things like that. So this is the text. It says, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. This is classic prophet stuff. The word of the Lord coming to someone. This is like a call narrative where Jonah is beginning to see what he is supposed to be doing. Now also, just so you know, the book of Jonah does not exist in a vacuum. There's a reference, a very brief reference to a guy named Jonah, son of Amittai, in 2 Kings chapter 14. And in that text, he is dealing with Jeroboam II, and he is telling him that the, uh, the borders of Israel will be shored up. They will be extended and that Israel will be okay. And this story seems to be taking some of that information and then creating a narrative around this person named Jonah. Okay, so the word of the Lord is coming to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, get up, go to Nineveh, the great city. I want you to take, uh, pay attention to something here, this, this verb structure of kum, lake. Say kum, lake. That means get up, go. These are two commands. And in the Hebrew Bible, what you expect is God says something, kum, lake, and then the person cooms and lakes. It's what they do. This is how they tell stories. Get up and go. So he got up and went. That's what you're expecting to happen here. But he's going to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has risen before me. This is really weird. Prophets don't go to foreign territories. This is the only story in the prophetic corpus in the Old Testament where a prophet of Israel or Judah is supposed to be going outside of the boundaries of God's people, supposed to be going in this sense into the heart of the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. We'll talk more about that in a second. Get up and go to Nineveh. That's the call for Jonah because their evil has risen before me. And Jonah, it says, he gets up and he cooms. He gets up, he's, he, he rises, but then it says he arises to flee. And the reader says, what? Right off the bat, Jonah is disobeying God's orders. He gets up, he cooms, but he flees, it says. He flees to Tarshish from before the Lord. This phrase here, from before the Lord or from uh, before the presence of the Lord, he's attempting to go where God is not. Which for an Old Testament prophet, does that make any sense? No, because God is everywhere. We know that. But we do know that if Jonah makes it to Tarshish, he at least might blend in. It's not as though he's going to escape God. He's just wanting to go where people aren't going to be asking him to do God-like stuff, Israel-like stuff. He just wants to go and to leave that life behind him. 
So he, he gets up and he goes to flee to Tarshish from before the Lord to Jaffa or Joppa. Uh, and he found a ship coming from Tarshish and he paid its fare and he went down. This whole chapter one is Jonah's descent. Okay, he's going down to the port, and he's going down into the boat, and then he's going down into the belly of the fish. Jonah keeps going down, 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 down with them to go to Tarshish from before the Lord. Now, if you notice here, Jonah lives in the north of Israel right here. He's supposed to go to Nineveh up here in the Assyrian Empire, but instead he goes down to Joppa and wants to take a boat to Tarshish, which is actually like the direct opposite of where he is supposed to go. This is not just some random coincidence. Jonah is the anti-prophet who is doing the exact opposite of what God is asking him to do. And all my Seinfeld people in the room said, yeah, yeah, because George Costanza will do the opposite, hopefully to put himself in a better uh, place with the ladies or with his job or whatever. I think it, he even eats like a tuna salad sandwich when really he doesn't eat tuna salad. Okay, I'm, I'm there you go. Yeah, because he's a tuna guy. I actually just saw an episode last night where he's ordering tuna, even though Elaine was trying to rally for the dolphins, you know? Okay, anyway, this is George Costanza. Soak that in. Okay, you got it. Now, he's going in the opposite direction because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because Nineveh is the enemy. Now, this is strange stuff because Nineveh, as the capital of Assyria, you would think that potentially the text would talk more about the entire empire, but here it's focused in on one city, now, just so you know some background here, the Assyrian army was ruthless. They were known for their siege warfare. You've heard me talk about this. They have siege engines and they'd build ramps up to the walls of the cities and they would begin to destroy the walls and they would have archers and, and a lot of blood would be shed through the Assyrian army. There's, there's wall reliefs uh, that were dedicated to certain battles with the Judean and the Israelite empires. And we see how these Assyrians were were prolific in their warfare. They were archers and they were pros at the siege warfare. And there's actually reliefs from Lachish where we have people being uh, scalped. We have people going through immense torture. And this is where God is telling Jonah to go. In the background of this, the Assyrian Empire eventually destroys Israel, remember you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and Israel gets destroyed in 722 BC at the height or nearing the height of the Assyrian Empire, and God is saying, go to these people and preach to them. Background, when prophets go to preach, they're not usually going to say, this is what's going to happen to you. They're going to preach so that people can respond so that people can turn from their wicked ways and so that God can be merciful to them. The underlying text here is Jonah, go to Nineveh, the heart of the empire, the people that have destroyed your hometown, the people that are prolific in warfare and offer them my mercy. And Jonah says, no, thank you, and goes in the immediate opposite direction here. The text um, is helping us to see some of this when we set it in its context. Pete N says, I don't want to use an inappropriate analogy, but God's willingness to give the Ninevites a chance to repent while they were at the height of their destructive power might be compared to giving Stalin a chance to repent while he was starving millions of Russian farmers or Hitler a chance while he was slaughtering millions of Jews. We, we can't fathom this. This doesn't make sense to us where people get what's coming to them, justice, right? You do the crime, you do the time. And this is the mindset that Jonah has and God is saying in this text, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something different here, Jonah. I want you to go and I want you to preach and I want you to give them grace and mercy and I want you to give them a chance. Preaching point number one. Would you be able to go into the heart of your, your enemies, whoever they might be? 
And you could think from a nationalistic sort of standpoint, like America's enemies. You could think maybe even more personally, your own enemies. But oftentimes when we think about people receiving the grace and mercy of God, I know that a lot of us are very human. And I know that when we see that plastered on, say, Facebook or Instagram, you might kind of bristle a bit and say, that person's awful. And why should anything good be happening to them when they did fill in the blank? And then take that to a, to a larger level where these people are destroying collectively Jonah's people and God says, hey, go, go be merciful to them. And we can see where Jonah is now coming from, right? We probably too would be on the first boat out to Tarshish and we too would be down in the, the bottommost parts of the boat sleeping because we don't want anything to do with this God and this mercy, okay? Hold on to that. The story continues, and the Lord cast a great wind upon the sea. This is the first use of this verb in, in chapter one. It's a, it's a casting or a hurling. God is hurling wind onto the sea, and we'll see who else is hurling things as we go. And no, don't go to your boat experiences. That's not the kind of hurling I'm talking about. Huh? Yeah, all right, thanks. So the Lord cast a great wind upon the sea and there was a great storm on the sea and the ship threatened to break up. This is a really magnificent uh, personification of the boat here because the boat is, is thinking. This is a thinking verb and it's saying like, hmm, maybe I'll break up, maybe I won't break up, I don't know. Like the boat has this, has this mind to make these sorts of decisions. And the sailors were afraid and each man cried out to his God and they cast the gear that was in the ship into the sea to lighten their load. God hurls the wind and these people in response, they hurl the, the cargo out into the water so that they can have a chance to get to safety. And Jonah goes down and he had come down into the far corners of the craft and had laid down and fallen deep asleep. And the captain approached him and said, what are you doing deep asleep? How can this be? We're all up here on the top trying to figure out if we're gonna make it or not. We're all praying. We're all doing whatever we can do. These are pagan sailors, by the way, who are doing what prophets do, attempting to get their gods involved. And he says, call out to your God, perhaps the God, any of them, we don't know, just some of them, who, I don't know, maybe one of them will give some thought to us that we might not perish. Remember, this is a long time ago on the boat, and you're in the water, and for a Jewish audience, and for any really, anyone in the ancient Near East, like the water was scary stuff. This is where you go to die, and also this is where you go where there's sea monsters. Remember the Leviathan and Rahab and all of these mythical creatures that are circling around, and as the waves are getting big, the pagan sailors say, we've gotta pray! And Jonah's asleep doing not prophet-like stuff. And the sailors, they say to each other, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this evil is upon us. And they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. You could see that one coming because you know this part of the story. And they said to him, tell us, pray. Remember that from last week? This is like a softening of the command. Tell us, we beseech you. Tell us, pray, you on whose account this evil is laid upon us. See, they take this casting of lots seriously. And the person upon whom the lot falls is the guilty party. So then they are immediately going to him and saying, tell us how this evil is, is, is upon us. What is your work and where do you come from and what is your land and from what people are you? And he said to them, Hebrew, I am. And then he goes farther and says, and the Lord God of the heavens do I fear. This Lord God made the sea and the dry land. Probably the pagan sailors had no concept of this because for them, there was a God of the water and there was a God of the dry land. And what Jonah is saying is, I'm from the Hebrews. Maybe you've heard of us. Our God is really powerful. And he made all of this. And yeah, I'm, I'm the guy that has brought this evil upon you and you're gonna have to do something about that. The men feared greatly and they said to him, what have you done? These men knew that he was fleeing from before the Lord, for he had told them. And they said to him, what shall we do that the sea would be calm for us? For the sea was storming more and more. And he said to them, this is what you need to do. Lift me up and cast me into the sea. 
that the sea would calm for you, for I know that on my account this great storm is upon you. And when you were kids, you thought, man, Jonah, that's really nice of you. Like, you're sacrificing yourself for these pagan sailors. Cool, man. Maybe he does get it, after all. There's another way to read this, you know. It might not be that Jonah is sacrificing himself for the greater good. It might be that he's so ticked at God that he says, I'd rather die than do what that God wants me to do. So just pick me up and chuck me into the sea because there's no way on earth over my dead body I'm going to Nineveh. And the sailors consider taking him up on this. But again, we think that Jonah is so great and so noble, but really that's not what we're getting from this story. It says the men rode to get back to dry land and, and they were not able, every boat had some oars on board so that they could attempt to do something like this, but the storm is just too much. It says the storming grew upon them more and more and they called out to the Lord. Now they're calling out to Jonah's God and saying, please Lord, please Yahweh, don't let us perish on account of this guy. Save us. We didn't know. Don't hold us accountable for the guilt of this person. We're gonna throw him overboard. We're gonna kill your guy. But don't hold us accountable for that. That's what they're saying. So they lift up Jonah and cast him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its fury, and the men feared the Lord greatly and offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. It's interesting, isn't it? Jonah's job as a prophet, is to announce, in a sense, the goodness of God to people. Jonah finds himself on a boat going to Tarshish, like way out of the way, and his really terrible witness, if you will, gets these people to believe that Yahweh is powerful and that Yahweh is worth following. And check this out. It says that uh, the Lord set out a great fish to swallow Jonah, and he was three days and three nights in the innards of the fish, and Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the innards of the fish. This is two of the three verses in the entire book that focus on this crazy fish, yet we have turned the entire story into Jonah and the fish, a fish tale, as Sam would say. We've, we've focused so much on what's going on, but really this is just one part of the larger narrative in the book. It's not about a fish. But while Jonah is in the innards of the fish, he launches into this prayer, and we're not gonna read through this whole thing. It's interesting, though, because he launches into a prayer that is called a thanksgiving psalm. And the structure of Thanksgiving psalms in the book of Psalms are psalms that, that the community lifts up or individuals lift up after they have been delivered after God has saved them from whatever struggle that they're going through. And the thoughtful reader says, wait to tick, because the thoughtful reader is British. <laughs> Must be, always. Jonah is in the belly of the fish, praying that God has delivered him and offering thanks for what God has done. I called out from my straits, from my, uh, my, my, my difficulty. I called out to Yahweh and he answered me. From the belly of Sheol, I cried out. I was more than dead. I had descended from my hometown to Joppa. I have gotten on the, the very uh, bottommost part of the boat. I have been thrown out into the, into the sea. A fish swallowed me and has taken me down to the gates of the underworld. And now I know, and now I understand. I cried out from, from the, the belly of Sheol, the place of, of death, and you heard my voice. This prayer has all sorts of water imagery. At one point, Jonah has seaweed wrapped around his head, and he's so thankful that God is present. And you'd think that this might mean something for Jonah. The Lord speaks to the fish and it vomits Jonah onto the dry land. And this, this wording is weird, right? Think about it. Who's God talking to here? Fish. The fish. Fish and humans or fish and the divine don't usually correspond where you say, go do this, fish. I don't know about your aquarium. Maybe you have very talented 
fish around you, but here we have this sort of uh, moment where God is telling the fish to do something and the fish is listening because all throughout the story, God is the creator who has power over the created entities of the world, whether it's the storms or the fish or we'll see a plant in chapter four. There's all sorts of things that are happening here. It's weird. And usually we don't have eyes to see that because we're usually so caught up with the fish. And you would think that Jonah would learn something here. And we, we kind of go into the last couple of chapters of the book, and we're going to pick up some pace here as Jonah goes to Nineveh, and we see what he's going to do with the assignment that he has. It says, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Coom, lake, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city. It's the same command, and call out to to the people there, the call or the message that I speak to you, and now Jonah cooms and lakes. He finally gets up and he goes, and you're hopeful that Jonah understands what's going on. He goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, and Nineveh was a great city of gods, a three days walk across. An innocuous detail that for most of us we would say, sounds good, until you start thinking about it a bit. How many miles, say, could you walk in the course of a day? Most scholars would say, maybe 30 miles in a day. So if you're walking for three days and you're walking about 30 miles a day, how far are you going? There's no way on earth that this city in the old uh, ancient Near Eastern part of the world would be big enough to occasion a three days walk through the city. Okay, one scholar says, this is our good friend John J. Collins again, in accordance with the hyperbolic style of Jonah, the size of the city is exaggerated. The ruins of Nineveh are roughly three miles across. Some people say that they have a perimeter of about seven and a half miles uh, going around. I forget what the proper term there is, circumference? Certainly not a three days walk. If you're trying to walk 90 miles or so in a city, this is about the size of Los Angeles and the surrounding areas not an ancient city. So we have in this story some, some uh, hyperbole that's happening. Jonah begins to come into the city one day's walk and he calls out and he says, 40 days more and Nineveh is overthrown. As a preacher, I must commend him because this message is a mere five words and it's highly effective, but he's basically given up here. He's got five words to say to the people. This is not a Stephen Furtick sermon. Some of you guys are, are into like his, his style and his gusto and his really cool tennis shoes. Maybe if you're a bit more progressive, Rob Bell's your guy. This is not a Rob Bell-esque sermon where he's got a big tour bus and he shows up at a local concert venue and walks around like this and he talks for two hours with his hands to his side, strutting around and he tells jokes and laughs at them. Ha, 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 ha. And if that's not your style, my man T.D. Jakes, the five words that Jonah is preaching here, they're, they're not representative of any of this. He shows up and says, 40 days, you guys are going to die. And I hope you do because of what you've done. This is a bold move because you don't walk in to Hitler's Germany in the 30s and start saying, you're going to die because when you say that, what happens to you? You die. And actually, Jonah doesn't even believe this. It would be more likely that he would say, you're not gonna die. 40 days and Nineveh's gonna be overthrown. Side note, the word there for being overthrown, that's Sodom and Gomorrah language. Sodom and Gomorrah is gonna be overthrown by the big divine catastrophe that's happening. And Jonah is saying that this is what the message of the Lord is, but Jonah doesn't believe it because Jonah knows that what God wants to do is to be gracious to his people. And the people of Nineveh trusted God. Just hang with me for a second. You've invaded the upper echelon of Germany in the 30s you go in there and you pronounce, you guys are gonna be destroyed in 40 days. What's the response that you're anticipating? Gunshot. You die. But in this story, again, catch this, this, this un, I don't wanna say unrealistic, but man, it's unrealistic. Because these people are tied to an ideology that says destroy and conquer and expand our territory. But the people of Nineveh trust 
God. They call a fast and they don sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And the word reached the king of Nineveh. That's also weird. We'll talk about that in a second. And he rose from his throne and took off his mantle and covered himself in sackcloth and sat upon ashes. This is classic repentance language that you're not expecting to happen. So immediately from the people of the Assyrian Empire, there's weird stuff happening here. The response of the people and also what this says about Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is terrible. They are recalcitrant. They are rebellious. God can say to them in clear language, hey, go do this. And they say, no, I'm going to do something else instead. But now Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire is the standard of repentance and belief and trust. Wrap your brain around that. It's crazy. Also, the king of Nineveh? This isn't a real person. First of all, he's got no name. Second of all, Nineveh's just a town. They're treating this like this massive entire empire, and it's not. This is the way the storyteller is weaving this tale together by using some at least questionable uh, descriptors of the people in the story. And the king had it proclaimed, and he said in Nineveh, by the authority of the king and his great men, saying, man and beast, cattle and sheep shall taste nothing. They shall not graze and they shall not drink water. Did you catch that? Let me slow it down for you one more time. By the authority of the king and his great men, man and beast, cattle and sheep, they're fasting. The animals are not drinking water. The animals are participating in the religious rites of the people. The king of Nineveh, who has no name, is saying, I have a decree. And not only will the people observe this fast, so will the animals. And it continues, man and beast, they're wearing sackcloth. <laughs> they're putting on the, 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 the clothes of repentance. And they, question mark, shall call out who? The people? Yes, and the animals. They're all crying out in repentance saying, Woe to us, O Lord Yahweh. Don't kill us. It's preposterous. <laughs> they call out to God with all their might, and every man of them shall turn back from his evil way and from the outrage to which they hold fast. This is what the king of Nineveh is saying. We've got one chance. Who knows? Maybe God will turn back and relent and turn back from his blazing wrath and we shall not perish. Who knows, people and animals? Maybe God's going to change God's mind. I don't even want to talk about this. Because we all have thoughts on what God knows and what God doesn't. But whenever we read the actual Bible, it pushes us. Well, of course, God knows what's going to happen, and he's just, you know, saying the right things, get the people to do the right things, so that he can do the thing that he already knew he was going to do, and that's how it worked. That's pretty tortured hermeneutics, isn't it? Yeah. Trying to get to where you want it to be. Maybe God will change his mind, and guess what? He does. He sees the animals in their sackcloth and sitting on ash, and he says, those are my people. <laughs> I can't kill them. I can't kill those animals or the, or the men and women of Nineveh, of the Assyrian Empire that has destroyed pretty much everything in the known world at this time. Well, everybody deserves a second chance, right? This is what God is saying, and Jonah's not having it. God sees their acts, that they had turned back from their evil way, and God relented from the evil. Really, you could translate that as calamity. I think Bob's going a bit far here. Bob. <laughs> relented from the evil that he had said to do to them, and he did not do it. Now, I do want you to take note here because we have a couple uses of the term evil, and it's going to play uh, on itself as we turn into chapter 4. The very thing was evil for Jonah, and he was peeved, incensed, it says, hot with anger, because Jonah knew the whole dumb time what was going to happen. And he says to the Lord, I told you, was it not my word when I was still in the land? Did I not 
hastened to flee to Tarshish because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, as we know from Exodus 34. In the divine revelation of God, when he's displaying who he is to Moses, Jonah knows this too, and that's the characteristic of God that he does not want to show up here because the Ninevites are dirty and they deserve to die. I knew that you are kind and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. And also, he gets a little midrashic here and adds, and I knew that you relent from your evil. I knew that you would do this, and I hate you for it. I wish I was dead. Because these people don't deserve jack from you, and I don't want to be any part of it. And now, Lord... Take my life, pray. Take my life, I beseech you. Because for me, my death is better than my life. He says this a couple times. I'd rather be dead than be a part of what's going on here. And the Lord said, I love Robert Alter's translation. Hmm. Are you good and angry? <laughs> Parents, I don't know if you've been in, in the room when your kids are losing their gourd and you just stoke the fire a bit and say, hmm. You look a little tense. What's going on here? This is what God is doing to Jonah. He sees how, how irrational he's being, and God says, are you good and angry? And then Jonah goes off. He goes out of the city. He sits down to the east of the city, makes himself a shelter there, and he sat under it in the shade till he might see what would happen in the city because Jonah, too, is wondering, maybe God will change God's mind and kill these people. I'm really struggling not to throw out some words that are inappropriate even for the funeral room here at Asbury. He was hoping that God would change his mind and kill these people, and he's got a seat in the balcony saying, they should die, I'm gonna create a little shelter for myself, get some shade going on, kick up with an Arnold Palmer, maybe put a little vodka in there and just wait and see what happens. Hopefully, it will implode. And the Lord God set out a kikion plant. You know the type, right? <laughs> Super leafy. Set out a, a kikion plant. Nobody knows what, what this is, by the way. And it rose up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to save him from his evil plight. And Jonah rejoiced greatly over the kikion. Picture it. These people should die. They're awful. What a great little succulent plant here. I just love it. The, the little vase that it's in. And, you know, succulents are just, they're just really, they're good plants. He's saying this thing's good and he's rejoicing. And then God sets out a worm because God has power over the waves and he has power over the fish in the sea and he's got power over the worms and he's saying, all right, little worm, let's get to work. And as dawn came up on the morrow, Bob, and it struck, it crushed, it didn't nibble as you know worms to do, it destroys completely and entirely the kikion and it withers and is completely destroyed. And it happened as the sun rose that God set out a slashing east wind. Jonah has this little shelter that apparently gets demolished by the east wind. The kikion's gone because of the worm and his crazy appetite for destruction. And the sun strikes Jonah's head and he grew fainted and wanted to die. And he said, my death is better than my life. Again, God, you screwed me, again. I was enjoying this little plant and now it's gone. And God said to Jonah, are you getting angry about the kikion? <laughs> this is classic. And he said, I am good and angry to the point of death. And the Lord said, you, you had pity over the kikion for which you did not toil and which you did not grow, which overnight came and overnight was gone. And I, shall I not have pity for Nineveh, the great city 
in which there are many more than 120,000 human beings, probably a bit of hyperbole here. And these human beings, they don't know between their right hand and their left, and many beasts. The word of God for the people of God. It, it ends intentionally on this question because it's begging for you to insert yourself into the story. You're ticked about the kikiyan. Can't God be merciful to real human beings? As disgusting as we might think that they are because of their atrocious deeds, can God not be merciful in the midst of this? For many reasons, this story is probably not historical. And I put probably in there just for some of you, okay? There's no way on earth I think that this story actually happened. And for me, it doesn't even matter except that when we force the historical reading, we miss all of this stuff. The things like the unconventional storytelling, the fact that Jonah is not like any other prophet in the Old Testament, the fact that he's going to a foreign people, which isn't like prophets do in the Bible. Also, the story, it's a narrative about him. It's not like him having all of this prophetic preaching to a foreign people. It's completely dissimilar to every other prophetic text. It's the exaggerated prose that we see. This plant's growing up overnight and it's dying overnight because a worm is completely destroying it. A worm! <laughs> the fish is part of it, but it's also not all of it because there's things that are happening. The animals are wearing sackcloth. The animals are repenting. The animals are crying out to God and praying. That's not what animals usually do. There's a movement towards universalism that doesn't make sense in this text. The fact that, that Israel is, is, is writing a story about the Ninevites or the Assyrian Empire receiving mercy, that's something that happens way late. It wouldn't be happening in the 8th century when, when Jonah was. This is a, a dated piece of writing. and Most people actually would say that this book is in the post-exilic period. Israel's been destroyed, Judah's been destroyed, and they're looking back on an ancient past to give a new theological point, namely that God is merciful to whoever God wants to be merciful to. There's polemical undertones that are basically saying, Jonah, you're the worst prophet ever. And Israel, you're the worst people ever. You have no right to be sad about the Kikiyan. You have no right to point your fingers at me and what I can and cannot do because you have received grace when you don't deserve it. So stop being so childish when I want to bestow grace on other people. One scholar, Terence Fretheim, says, whatever the specific literary form might be, the book is almost certainly imaginative literature. This is usually what people say because they don't want to put a specific genre on the text. They just say this is imaginative literature or a didactic story. It's a story meant to teach. It's been developed around this historical character as we talked about, but its purpose is engaging readers in theological issues. It is not attempting to tell us what happened way back when. It's attempting for us to enter into the story much like a parable so that when we're left with the cliffhanger of, can I not care about these people? We have to answer the question too. So I pose to you, in light of this story, do you love your enemies? Jesus had a lot to say about this too, right? Are we like Jonah, racist and xenophobic and bigoted? Do we like certain people and not others? Do we choose who gets to receive our love or do we love universally like Jesus is imploring us to do and like Jonah is being asked to do in this imaginative past in Israel's history? How do we view inclusion? Who gets in? Is it just us? Because we look so good and because I'm so sweaty. <laughs> How do we decide? Certainly some people don't get in, Republicans. <laughs> Democrats, for, to keep Vicky honest, <laughs> Trump voters, Obama voters, who gets in? Because we all have our dividing lines as to who is an enlightened individual that cares about people. How do we legislate justice? 
This whole story is Jonah being ticked because he knows God is gonna be merciful, but God shouldn't be because Jonah knows how justice should be enacted, and it should not be given to the Ninevites. They should die a quick and painful death because of what they have done. Jonah knows best, do you? Can you look at the things going on in the world or on your Facebook page? Man, I hate going here, but I know, I know most of us are on there, the old ones anyway, Gabe, the, the old people are on Facebook. <laughs> Do we legislate justice and who should be getting what because of the type of character that they have? How do we view God's mercy? Is it for everybody? Or is it for only people that deserve it? Is it only for people like us? Are we really that different than Jonah as he's presented in this story? This is a story that's attempting to bring us to this theological climax where it says, what do we do? How do we live? Because of this example that we see modeled in the book of Jonah, this anti-example, if you will. And these questions, they're poignant, especially at this time in our, in our nation's history. Who are we letting in? Who are we keeping out? Who deserves grace and mercy? Who deserves help and love? We all have barriers. But if we learn anything from this story, it's that they must crumble at the feet of Jesus so that we can begin to love not only enemies, but everyone with the radical, beautiful, inclusive love of Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of TRP's weekly podcast. If you live in or near Salisbury, Maryland, come join us for one of our Sunday services. We'd love to meet you. If you're interested, you can get more info on our website, RestoreSBY.org or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash RestoreSBY. If you're a regular listener, thanks for coming back. If you've benefited from what we do and would like to support us, you can share all your kind words and good vibes with the world by rating us on iTunes. Or if you're so inclined, you can give financially at give dot restore sby dot org. We'll see you next week.